The following program is brought to you by the AHIMA 22 Global Conference. If you are listening, you and your team belong at the AHIMA 22 Global Conference, October 9th through the 12th in Columbus, Ohio, for networking connections that will last a lifetime. Find out more about AHIMA 22. Register today at ahima.org. Monitor Monday is recorded before a live online audience. From the studios of Rack Monitor, this is Monitor Monday for September 26, 2022. Here's today's rundown. The feds are backing down on hospitals that are non-compliant with the hospital price transparency rule. DMS is lobbying fines. Reporting our lead story today is Golden Goyle. We'll also hear from Dr. Ronald Hirsch, healthcare attorney Nicole Emanuel, Tiffany Ferguson, Kate Brantley, and healthcare attorney David Glaser. Now here's the publisher of Rack Monitor and the host of Monitor Monday, Chuck Buck. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to Monitor Monday. We have much news to report, and we begin this morning, as we always do, with Dr. Ronald Hirsch making his Monday Rounds here on Monitor Monday. Monday Rounds is sponsored by R1 Physician Advisory Solutions. Here now making his Monday Rounds is Dr. Ronald Hirsch. Well, good morning, all. Last week was a busy week for the Office of the Inspector General. They released two very interesting reports. The first audit looked at care provided in critical access hospitals. As most know, critical access hospitals have a different payment structure, and one of the ways they differ from other hospitals is they're permitted to bill for professional services for providers who assign the rights to the hospital to bill for them. And these are unemployed physicians who they're not employing. When that happens, the hospital gets paid a higher rate than if the physician billed independently. Well, the OIG audited 20,000 claims for physician services submitted by the physician themselves and then searched the critical access hospital claims for claims submitted for that same service, and they found 20,000 matching claims. In other words, the CMS paid the physician for their services and the hospital for that same service. If you work in a critical access hospital, alert your staff to this and tell the doctors to stop sending in bills when they agreed not to do it. The second audit looked at outpatient billing for services provided to patients who were admitted as an inpatient in another facility. Yep, we've talked about this before. When a patient is an inpatient and needs a service that cannot be provided at that facility, the patient may be sent to another facility for the procedure and then return, but the cost of that service is the responsibility of the inpatient hospital and the facility that does the procedure should not be billing Medicare. Well, as in previous audits, that continues to happen, this time at a cost to the trust fund of $39 million per the OIG. Well, now that's actually not totally correct because if the hospital billed for the admission that included the service on the claim, they probably would get a little bit more money. So there's some balance there. Nonetheless, this is still a common error and it really should not be happening. Under under the in, under arrangement billing rules, there, um, this is a problem that billing staff has to be made aware that the patient went to another facility to receive a service that needs to go on the claim. If they're not told about it, they have no way to know that they're supposed to bill for it. So make sure your processes are in place. Now, last week I had the privilege of speaking at the annual Revenue Integrity Symposium and talked about observation. And it was clear from the audience members that the problem of custodial patients occupying hospital beds is growing nationwide. Now, I wish I had a solution, 
But what I have discovered and presented there was that once the necessary care is done, you should stop billing observation hours and start billing custodial care hours with code A9270. Quantify the amount of free care you're providing, and then maybe you can get the resources to address it. Finally, medical advances are amazing. In reading Twitter this weekend, I became aware of a new advance, short stay colon resection. Yes, have part of your colon removed and go home the same day or the next day. Can you just hear the insurance companies drooling to now start demanding that all colectomies be done as outpatient? Thanks, Chuck. Back to you. Thank you, Dr. Hirsch. That was the Vice President of R1 Physician Advisory Services, Ronald Hirsch, MD. Dr. Hirsch was making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. Now's the time for the Monitor Monday Rack Report with healthcare attorney Nicole Emanuel. And good morning, Nicole. Hello, and happy Rack Monitor Monday. As you know, many states have expanded Medicaid. I'm not saying whether that's good or bad, just that some have expanded and some states have not. North Carolina is one that has not expanded Medicaid. North Carolina's Department for Medicaid received a waiver from CMS, though, last month to extend Medicaid and the CHIP coverage for 12 months after pregnancy. As a result, up to an additional 28,000 people will now be eligible for Medicaid or CHIP for a full year after pregnancy in North Carolina. CMS gave its blessing or, or its waiver to 24 states in this exact zone. An estimated 361,000 Americans annually will now be eligible for 12 months of postpartum coverage. If all states adopted this option, as many as 720,000 people across the United States would be guaranteed Medicaid and SHIP coverage for 12 months after pregnancy. SHIP basically piggybacks Medicaid, but it's for children. It's not for adults. Uh, but so does EPSDT, the Early and Periodic Screening Diagnostic and Treatment Benefit provides comprehensive and preventive health care services for children under age 21 who are enrolled in Medicaid. As a hospital, or actually any provider, if you serve children and get your claims denied, EPSDT should overturn your denials. Check your compliance department. If claims are getting denied, for children 21 years of age or younger, then you should be disputing these denials based on EPSDT. Now, CHIP differs from Medicaid EPSDT. There can be premiums or cost sharing with CHIP. CHIP is also a preset amount, whereas Medicaid EPSDT creates exceptions for those in need under 21. CHIP was designed to cover children who fall outside of Medicaid eligibility, but who otherwise were not able to be insured through a family plan. This program vastly increased the number of children eligible for health insurance. However, CHIP is not governed by the same legislation as Medicaid and offers drastically different levels of coverage. Now, certain states have different names for their Medicaid and CHIP programs. For example, in California, both programs are called Medi-Cal. In Georgia, Medicaid is called Georgia Medical Assistance, 
and their CHIP program is called Peak Care for Kids. Medicaid and CHIP provide 51% of health care to our nation's youth, more than 40 million children. In the last few months, CMS has published numerous bulletins regarding the importance of a EPSDT, especially germane to mental health and EDI in the era of COVID. Back to you, Thank you, Nicole. That was Nicole Emanuel. She's a healthcare attorney and she's a partner at the law firm of practice. And coming up at about nine minutes after the hour in your time zone, you're going to hear from David Glazer, Tiffany Ferguson, Kate Brantley, Kate and Govit Goyle, who's standing by to report our lead story. This is Monday. It's September the 26th. It's Rosh Hashanah. You're listening to the live edition of Monitor Monday. Stand by. The American College of Physician Advisors is excited to announce the first Essentials and Fundamentals course. It's October 17th at the Lowe's Chicago O'Hare Hotel. This one-day event is specifically designed to cover the basics of utilization management, care management, and clinical documentation integrity. It's an excellent opportunity for new physician advisors or those looking to brush up or expand their knowledge base. All speakers are content experts and thought leaders within each respective topic, with a cumulative experience of over 50 years in active physician advisor practice. The in-person venue will allow ample opportunities for specific questions to be answered, leading to greater understanding and the ability to apply the principles discussed in your specific organization. Participation is limited to maintain a smaller, more personal educational setting. Don't miss this opportunity to get clinical documentation, utilization management, and care management education in one day in an in-person format for only $550. For registration and more details, go to the ACPA website, acpadvisors.org. Here now with the Monitor Money Risky Business Report is healthcare attorney David Glazer. Good morning, David. What is going to be risky this morning? Well, Chuck, it's predicting future rulemaking. And I'm thinking particularly about the split and shared billing regulation. As we've previously reported, the proposed 2023 fee schedule, which was issued on July 29th, includes a proposal to delay for one year until the 1st of January 2024, the requirement that split and shared visits be billed by whichever professional spends the most time with the patient. Now, I've seen a fair amount of speculation about whether this will just be a one-year delay, or it's a sign that the requirement will be withdrawn. The reality is, none of us know. In fact, we don't even know the requirement will actually be delayed. The rule is only proposed. I certainly expect that the proposal will be finalized, but my expectation is not an iron-clad guarantee. Now, I hope that CMS ultimately withdraws the obligation to determine billing based on whoever spends the most time with the patient. Obviously, it's administratively challenging. Precise time measurements are not a normal part of medical care. Moreover, that requirement is inconsistent with the core policy behind split and shared visits. CMS created the split-shared rule because Medicare's Incident 2 benefit does not apply in facilities. CMS wants facilities to have the same benefit that exists in clinics, so it makes sense to have the same basic standards apply in both settings. In the clinic, 
there's no requirement that a physician spend the majority of time with the patient to bill incident two. The non-physician practitioner can see the patient for 20 minutes, the physician comes in for five, and incident two billing is kosher. Now, I don't understand why this heightened requirement would be imposed in a facility. Now, a few weeks ago, I did a segment about how Medicare's definition of a split and shared visit is something that occurs only in the hospital. I recently had a bit of an epiphany on how to frame this, because people often say you can't do split or shared visits in the clinic. I think it's much better to say when a physician and a non-physician practitioner both see a patient on the same day, in the clinic, it's incident two, in the facility, it's shared. While longer, that sentence has the benefit of being both accurate and clear. Unfortunately, CMS did not do us any favors in the proposed fee schedule. Their topic sentence says, a split or shared visit refers to an EM visit performed by both a physician and a non-physician practitioner in the same group practice. That is wrong, is confirmed by the very next sentence, because they proceeded to say, in the non-facility, for example, office setting, the rules for incident two billing may apply under this circumstance. I sure wish that CMS had worded the opening sentence differently. The way they've defined split and shared in the regulation the visit has to be in a facility. Anything that happens in a clinic isn't split or shared. They're billable, but using the incident to label. Now, I've noticed recently that the folks at CMS have been getting sloppier with language than they should be and they've historically been. This carelessness is one of the reasons people are so confused about split and shared visits. The language in the most recent proposed rule doesn't help. Now, I've never ended my segment with an instrumental piece, and it's time to change that. In Hill Street Blues, the character Sergeant Phil Esterhouse ended every briefing with, hey, hey, let's be careful out there. Perhaps a snip of Mike Post's great theme song will serve as a similar admonition to whoever is drafting regulations and preamble at CMS. That's it, let's roll. Hey. Chuck. Let's be careful out there. Back to you. Thanks, David, very much. Yes, let's be careful out there. That was healthcare attorney David Glazer. David is a shareholder in the law firm of Fredericton of Byron in downtown Minneapolis. Here now with the latest news on the social determinants of health is Senior Healthcare Consultant Tiffany Ferguson. Good morning, Tiffany. Tiffany, what do we need to know today about the social determinants of health? Tiffany? Good morning, all. Last week, I highlighted CMS's Office of Minority Health's mission, Working to Achieve Health Equity. Today, I would like to elaborate on their mission by diving into how CMS exactly plans to accomplish this goal. Uh, The plan is a 10-year framework identifying five key areas. So priority one is to expand the collection, reporting, and analysis of standardized data. That means CMS is going to continue to work on the standardization and data collection of SDOH information. The goal will be to expand collection opportunities that is going to increase our understanding of the needs of American communities, including social risk factors, and any changing of concerns that are going to happen over time. Priority two is access to 
assess causes of disparities within CMS's program. So they're looking to address any inequities in policies and service operations that continue to perpetuate the misaligned resource and health service distributions for those that are most in need. Priority three is to build capacity of healthcare organizations and the needed workforce. Priority four is to advance language access, health literacy, and the provision of culturally tailored services. This directly relates to my last report last week to ensure that our health care delivery is given in a culturally respectful and linguistically appropriate manner. Additionally, this requires that we adjust our care delivery to a method that recognizes health literacy for improved quality of care. Priority five, strives to increase all forms of accessibility to health care services. CMS is specifically hoping to have a greater understanding of care delivery for individuals with disabilities and how various forms of disability services, including the CMS-supported benefits, appropriately address care delivery and quality for our disabled individuals. So in year one, what have they done so far and what have they been focusing on? Well, they've expanded SDOH collection data requirements into post-acute spaces. CMS has expanded through the Innovation Center, a program for Medicare Advantage plans called Health Equity Incubation Program. It's designed to help MA plans identify disparities among their enrollees and provide flexibilities in service delivery to close gaps in care. CMS is rolling out support health equity technology assistance, this is an interesting one, to help organizations collect SDOH data and complete analysis on their specific populations. And they're looking to expand marketplace materials in various languages for and evaluating how they, think they can expand supportive services for the Medicaid, Medicare population for people with disabilities. So our question today, I'm gonna to go light with you guys for a listener survey and ask, are you in support of CMS's framework for health equity? Yes, no, unsure. And with that, back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Tiffany. That was Senior Healthcare Consultant, Tiffany Ferguson, Chief Executive Officer for Phoenix Medical Management. And we're going to have the results of today's Monitor Monday listener survey later in the broadcast. Up next, the Monitor Monday legislative update with Kate Brantley. The Monitor Monday Legislative Update is sponsored by Zealous, a market-leading provider-focused electronic healthcare payments technology company. Zealous delivers faster, simpler, more reliable, cost-effective payments backed by award-winning client service to medical and dental providers nationwide. Here now, substituting for Matthew Albright, is Kate Brantley. Good morning, Kate. Good morning, Chuck. While President Biden may have declared an end to the COVID pandemic, the effects it had on the healthcare system are most certainly going to linger on just a little bit longer. One of the hardest hit areas during the last few years was mental and behavioral health, something that we've talked about on this program before. While the need for these services increased during the pandemic, actual use is another story. It dropped steeply during the first few months of lockdown and has been one of the slowest healthcare areas to recover. The good news, however, is that it's also an area seeing some of the most significant progress as the pandemic era draws to a close. As reported by Tiffany Ferguson and others on this broadcast, the rollout of the 988 Suicide and Crisis Lifeline was one of the biggest stories of the summer, and a recent HHS report shows that it's working and working well. 
Data shows a 45% increase in contacts during the first full month since the rollout compared to the same time period in 2021. This translates to over 150,000 more potentially life-saving calls, chats, and texts. Response time has dropped from over two minutes to just 42 seconds with the new hotline as well. HHS Secretary Becerra noted that the 988 hotline is just one of many ways the administration intends to transform the mental health care system. And the agency added another one of these ways to its list when it approved for the state of Oregon what it hopes to be the first amongst many Medicaid state plan amendments addressing mental health care. Oregon's newly approved proposal is a first-of-its-kind Medicaid-supported mobile crisis intervention program. This program will provide immediate assessment, stabilization, and de-escalization assistance for recipients, connecting them with a behavioral health specialist 24 hours a day, seven days a week, including holidays. The hope is that this will decrease the need for expensive and extensive inpatient services when that might not even be the best course of treatment. While Oregon may be the first state to seek and receive approval for its new Medicaid state plan amendment, HHS has strongly encouraged other states to develop similar programs, providing 20 additional state Medicaid agencies with $15 million in planning grants to do so. Both of these initiatives, however, are dependent on having a sufficient number of providers on the other end of the phone, so to speak. And workforce shortages in the field is a pre-pandemic issue that only worsened during the last few years. The Biden administration has certainly consistently signaled its commitment to addressing this, but it actually isn't alone in its efforts. The Senate Finance Committee is also considering multiple pieces of legislation aimed at helping the shortage both now and going forward. Currently in its draft stages, the Behavioral Health Workforce of the Future Act hopes to shore up the mental and behavioral health workforce by adding 400 Medicare-funded psychiatric residency positions, expanding Medicare's health professional shortage area bonus program that provides incentives to those serving in designated areas, requiring new Medicaid guidance to states on how to increase their mental health workforce, and providing new options to hospitals on addressing worker burnout. With strong bipartisan support, the future of this particular act looks bright. So, Chuck, as we bring Suicide Prevention Awareness Month to a close here, these initiatives are hopefully bringing life-saving resources to Americans as they take their first steps into a post-pandemic world. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Kate. That was Kate Brantley, Legislative Affairs Analyst for Zealous. And coming up, CMS laying down the law on non-compliant hospitals. Could your hospital be fined? That story is next, but now it's time for the results of today's Monitor Monday Listener Survey. Once again, here's Tiffany Ferguson. Oh, this is interesting. So I'm looking at our results, and I asked the group, are you in support of CMS's framework for health equity? And actually, the majority of our listeners are unsure of whether or not they're in support of it probably because I ran through it in a short segment, but I will include the link so you guys can have a full detail of what they're planning to do. Um, It looks like about 24% are yes in favor. And with that, back to you, Chuck. This is Monitor Monday. Stand by. Are you ready to create a better world where health is transformed by data and information advances? Then you belong at the AHIMA 22 Global Conference, October 9th through the 12th in Columbus, Ohio. Join over 3,000 innovative healthcare professionals for thought-provoking workshops and networking connections that will last a lifetime. Imagine a better world where health information is transformed by data, and you are at the center. Recognize for improving lives because you made sure that 
The data in any healthcare record was trusted. Find out how to make this happen at AHEMA 22, where you will be convinced that data is the new medicine and the work you do is vital. Register today at the American Health Information Management Association website. That's ahema.org. CMS is laying down the law when it comes to hospitals that are not complying with the hospital price transparency rule. Here now to report our lead story is Govin Goyle. Good morning, Govin. Good morning. Thank you. Prior to January 1st of this year, if you were a hospital and identified by CMS as non-compliant with the CMS price transparency rule, whether that's with the machinable file or the consumer display, the civil monetary penalties were insignificant or minimal. It was a static penalty, regardless of the size of your hospital. So in other words, a 500-bed hospital would be fined the same as a 25-bed critical access hospital, and that would equate to $300 a day, or or only $110,000 translated over a year. CMS realized quickly that the fines were not high enough, and based on their own sampling and reviews, concluded a high rate of noncompliance in 2021. So to hold hospitals accountable, CMS dramatically increased the fines starting this year and based the fines on a sliding scale. Currently, the fines are $10 a day multiplied by the number of beds. So for that 500-bed hospital that was only subject to a fine of $110,000 in 2021, that hospital is now faced with a fine that's close to $2 million uh, in 2022. One thing that's important to note is that the number of days is equal to the number of days that hospitals determined to be out of compliance, beginning with the effective date of the final rule. Also, CMS does feel that before financial penalties are applied, along with some public shaming on their website, then a warning letter goes out, and depending on the severity of noncompliance, CMS, CMS may also ask for a response with what they call a corrective action plan or CAP. Now, CMS is continuing to audit hospital websites and has already issued over 350 warning letters, with some of these hospitals still uh, not compliant. As many of you might be aware, CMS did issue its first round of penalties in June to two hospitals in Georgia for failure to comply with the price transparency rule with total fines just over a million. One of the main issues identified with these hospital machinable files is that many line items, uh, such as supplies, were missing in the file. Uh, this is fairly typical if claims data is used to generate the machinable file versus payer contract rate and term sheets as required by CMS. Uh, so you need to make sure you include all items and services, regardless of volume, including pharmacy items at the NDC level, and you should include all payers at that plan level, including managed Medicaid and Medicare. Additionally, you should include all your negotiated rates from any employed physicians and put all that data in a single file. Uh, So, for example, don't break up your DRGs into a separate file. One more interesting note uh, to share, there's also a new law in Colorado that just went into effect last month where a patient can sue a hospital if that hospital is non-compliant with price transparency and if that hospital attempts to send a patient to collections. Now, the jury's still out as this will spread to other states, but one thing is for sure, with the recent requirements of the Good Faith Estimates under the No Surprises Act and the Transparency Coverage Rule impacting payers that just went into effect, price transparency is here to say. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, uh, Govin. That was uh, Govin Goyo. Govin is the Executive Vice President of Panacea Healthcare Solutions. By the way, Rack Monitor and Tia Tech are teaming up to tackle inefficiencies in revenue cycle management to ensure that all your claims are captured and paid in a timely manner using smart technology. 
We want to make sure that you get the dollars where they're needed most, and of course, that's providing patient care. So we're asking our audience to take this quick one-minute survey and to tell us what is your biggest holdup in the revenue cycle management process, Clark? That is the question. What is your biggest holdup in the revenue cycle management process? A, the position not creating or signing notes. B, the coding not completed or accurate. C, the biller not filing on time. D, other, E, non-applicable. Chuck? Thanks, Clark Anthony, very much. And that's going to be a wrap for this live edition of Monitor Monday. And I want to thank you all very much for being with us. And a special thanks to our outstanding panelists this morning, Nicole Emanuel, David Glazer, Tiffany Ferguson, Dr. Ronald Hurst, Kate Brantley, and Govin Goyo, who reported a lead story this morning on hospital transparency rule. And remember, you can listen to all the Monitor Monday broadcasts on Stitcher, Apple, Spotify, and Google Play. And when you do rate us, Give us a review. Hey, and one more thing before we go. Be sure to join me tomorrow for another live edition of Talk 10 Tuesday at 10 Eastern. That's when we continue our series on the 2023 E&M Code Changes with Colin Deegan. Until then, I'm Chuck Buck reporting for Rack Monitor and Monitor Monday. Have a great week, everybody. Monitor Monday is a presentation of Rack Monitor.